Okay. And let's get into it. So welcome back to the Shop Still Podcast, everyone. We've got a very, very exciting episode today with another prize winner. We're getting the uh, the royalty in on the show at the moment, which is exciting. Before we get to that, though, I do just want to uh, do a quick apology about having missed an episode uh, I've, I've kind of lost a bit of track where we are with our weeks. Everything's starting to mix up, but I know that we missed a show. I think it was last week. We should have put out a show, but we didn't. So apologies for that. Just a bit of a scheduling mix up. Um, but yeah, we do. We will have a show um, out this Sunday when you're hearing it. The other thing to mention as well is just a reminder that the next episode, not this one, the next one is going to be the last one of the season. So that will be the end of season five. And then we're going to take a bit of a break after that. So with that out of the way, I'm very excited to introduce our guest this week. He is a very accomplished woodworker. And I can say that with authority because he's this year's Clarence Prize winner. Um, which happened a couple months ago. So we're going to no doubt be talking about the piece that won. So welcome to the show, Patrick Adini. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're really excited about it. Um, uh, We had, um, we've recently, uh, we spoke to, was it Jess? Jess. Yeah. So it feels like we're doing... Yeah, that's the one. So it feels like we're talking to a lot of prize winners. Um, so let's let's definitely talk about the chair in a little bit. But I'm yeah, interested sure. to hear first how you got into woodworking. So for everyone who doesn't know you, how did you get into woodworking and what was your approach? Okay. Uh, hopefully we, we don't run out of time because it's, it's, it's kind of a good <laughs> story. Um, after high school, I studied fine arts at university and... I wasn't even interested in woodworking. Like, I didn't, I didn't do wood in school. I was the arts kid, so I was doing a couple of art subjects and I wanted to pursue that and become an artist, so naturally studied fine arts. Um, and when I got there, I was doing a painting major, thinking that I could become, you know, a landscape or a figure-in-space kind of painter. It's what I was really into at the time. And the, the teaching of the university was so conceptual they were saying that well they were kind of teaching at the time that painting isn't uh, as important as it once was in in history so it was so uh, I suppose left brain conceptual that it really pushed me or I realized that I was a lot more practically driven like and I, I was I needed I needed something a lot more tangible so in my second year at uni I started doing some more abstract sculptural work with uh, these red gum firewood stumps and just getting into the machine shop, polishing the tops up and, you know, polish the top up to 2,000 grit and it's like glass at that point in time and straight away from that moment I thought there's something so cool about working with timber and I I have to try and do this for, for my life. Like it's that perfect apex of um, creativity and something that's practical. And if you're a pragmatically driven person and a creative thinker, furniture is an awesome way to um, explore that that kind of, uh, I suppose, that lens. And so I left uni after my second year, did a pre-apprenticeship in furniture making and joinery. And uh, that was like a six-week course, three weeks through the course, uh, the teacher... This is like the sort of course that you do to figure out if you want to go and do an apprenticeship. Uh, the, tu- the tutor came in and said, oh, there's half a dozen employers who are looking for apprentices. Uh, does anyone want an apprenticeship? And I, like, stood up, you know, stood up, put my hand up. I, I want, you know, I want a job. And I looked around and none of my classmates had stood up. They were still on the fence, don't know if they want to do this and... At the time, I thought, far out, if I can get paid to, to do this and, and learn, I have to take this opportunity. So I did and started an apprenticeship uh, as a cabinet maker. And at the time, I would have been 19, and that was in Melbourne. So I started my apprenticeship. I did the first, you know, the way it's structured in Melbourne is you do four days for your employer, one day at trade school. Uh, so I did the first year... In that, in that structure, 
um, which was good. I was frustrated with the trade school at the time because it, um, I was trying to... We had these set projects, you know. I wanted to make them more exciting. Like, come on, guys. It was all pretty rigid. A lot of the components were pre-cut by the techs and this kind of assembly and do a scale drawing. And if it's one millimetre out, the teacher would come with the eraser and you've got to draw that line better. And it just did not work with my brain. And um, at the time, this is in 2000 and... Uh, this is in 2011, 2010... As a first-year apprentice, I was too young to be an adult apprentice but too old to live at home. So I was getting, I was getting paid $253 a week and living, you know, living in a share house and trying to pay the bills and it was tough. Like, I know mm. apprentice conditions have changed since then but I was at this crossroads where I either had to leave the formal training and drive a forklift for a year or something to save money to continue my apprenticeship or my employer at the time said if you come to work full-time um, straight away I'll give you an extra couple of hundred dollars a week and I'll increase your wage ahead of the uh, increments that you would receive as an apprenticeship so it seemed fairly attractive to me at the time and that's what I did and and worked on the job and uh, did that and ended up doing that for just under nine years. Nine years, wow. Yeah, box builder in the factory. Right. Um, so it's, it's really interesting because towards the end of that time, I, I really struggled because, because I left the formal element of the training behind I had a bit of that Stockholm syndrome, like this was all I had known from the, the scope of work that my employer at the time was doing. So that was how I thought, um, you know, just doing... Because every, every business, as you guys know, sits in a particular facet of the market. You're doing repetition depending on what the business model is. And uh, I felt trapped that I didn't have the skill set to go and find work for another company or go and do work as a joiner because it was sitting in a different facet. Um, and it was, a really, it was a really tough time, to be honest. Um, I ended up leaving, leaving the job and um, in 2019 went abroad uh, over to Europe and stayed with some friends over there, visited a whole bunch of fantastic uh, furniture makers and different people to try and uh, open my mind up to what, what different people were doing and tried to think how on earth can I take this um, perhaps a very well-practised but a very slim view of what it is to create something, uh, how, can I, how can I close the gap between making furniture for a living and, and creating my own designs from where I was there? Um, so when I got back from Europe, my partner and I moved down to Tassie and there's a great little co-op down here in Hobart. I don't know if you guys know of it, called Designed Objects Tasmania. Yep. Have you ever heard I of do. this place? Yeah, yeah. I yep. do, oh, yeah. Cool. So I came down here on a flight before I went to Europe that year just to scope the place out. And as soon as I came down here, I thought, this is it. You know, this is magic. I can start my career here because you rent a studio, like... Once you're accepted, there's a great big machinery room of woodwork stuff. There's metalwork gear. There's a spray booth. There's a sanding room. It's like all big three-phase industrial kit. Um, and it really serves as a great facilitator to close that gap between what your perhaps your creative ambitions are and it's just a space to come and figure it out. So obviously 2020 COVID hit. Um, when I came down to Tassie, I did uh, get some work as a joiner and I thought at the time that that was the best thing in the world because there was lots of cool solid timber stuff. We were doing different projects. It was more exciting. Uh, but very quickly I realised that within the trade sector, whether you're making boxes out of malamine or whether you're doing a staircase out of timber, it's all the same thing. It's just built to a spec you got to get in, you got to get out, you got to get it done. It's whilst the material and the 
perhaps there's a bit more variation as a joiner, the principles are the same thing. Very little creativity, um, installation-based work, site work, fluoro tops, in, out. And, you know, that culture can be quite over-masculine. It can be pretty um, right-wing, you know, footy with the boys sort of thing. And it just, it wasn't, it just wasn't for me. Um, so where did we get up to? 2020, uh, lost my job with uh, COVID hitting, uh, and that presented a pretty unique opportunity because uh, I got JobSeeker at the time, which was, you know, $300 a week or something, and it was just enough money to rent a studio here and pay for, you know, my portion of rent at a flat in Hobart. But I had my time, and it was this amazing little uh, window, and we were quite um, insulated from COVID in Tasmania, being an island, and there was this brilliant six months window of time there where I had complete autonomy over my time. Nobody was in here because obviously everyone's uh, COVID journey was different. And I had just enough money to, to get in and it was kind of like, here's the opportunity, what are you going to do with it? I think we were, we were really fortunate to um, have such positivity during that time and it certainly was not the case elsewhere in the country and my whole family's in Victoria and in Melbourne and we're talking to them and, uh, you know, the, the border was closed here and the, the virus was um, really limited to its, how much it spread. So during that particular six months of time, it was like the entire world stood still, but I could just keep going. And I had this great autonomy at the time and I had no idea where to start. I had all of these um, sort of pie-in-the-sky thinking, how am I going to navigate this? Am I, um, I know, you know, I knew I'm not a tradesman. I don't want to be a tradesman. Am I an artist? Do I go back into the art sphere where I once came from? Is it furniture? But as a non-trained furniture maker, you know, you can imagine the imposter syndrome is insane. And, like, am I, am I allowed to do this? Like, I don't have a piece of paper that says, um, yes, Patrick Adney, you are signed off with your diploma of this or this course that says you are a furniture maker. So even the notion of people saying, oh, what is it that you do? I didn't have an answer for them. So during that time, I thought the only way that I can start is with a good foundation, as lots of good, you know, woodworkers think. So I'm going to make a workbench um, and I'm going to make, I just called it the great redeemer because after screwing whiteboard boxes together for nine years in a concrete factory. Um, <laughs> this was your therapy, was it? Well, yeah, totally. I, I just said from the get-go, um, when this bench is complete, I do not want to look at one part of it and say, I wish I had not taken that shortcut. I wish I had done that better. I just thought this is the project. I've got the time. Um, as soon as I start accepting work, I'm never going to have this time again. So I have to make this the best... I'm going to make the best workbench in the world. That's just what I set out to achieve. And... You know, I spent about a thousand hours making the workbench, which is just ridiculous <laughs> over the like course it. of that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I thought it's, it's actually also a gift to myself as well, because if after 10 years of experience and then on the eve of going to transition to my own work, if I've got this little window of time, I can build this thing that is going to help build trust with the clients. I'm going to use it every single day for the rest of my life and it's within my skill set to do so. Have a crack. And mm. ironi ironically, I got so much complicated woodworking out of my system on this bench because the cabinet maker, which just screws everything together and uses bloom plates and track runners, looks at inlay and uh, big sliding dovetails, mitered bridles, all of this intense joinery through such a romantic lens. But then you actually do it and you're like, this is a lot of work. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone can, um, everyone can understand. So the bench, I still look at it and I thought, geez, I'm nuts. Like, and I'm happy that I've done it. I'm super, super happy. And, you know, people come in and they go, geez, that's a pretty impressive work bench. And it's just an interesting point. That's like plot one in, in yeah. the story, at least, at least up until this point in time. It's probably um, a really great reminder as well. If you're ever having a day in the workshop where you're like, shit, I can't, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. And then you look at the workbench and you're like, oh, I've done this. That's way harder <laughs> than what I'm, what I'm facing right now. Yeah. Exactly. It's all, it's all perspective, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. what, what is hard? What is time? And yep. when you're thinking about a, uh, a project or a big commission or something, everything's relative. Um, so, yeah, it, it's that like woodwork is just this applied skill set that takes so much time to hone and it feels like there's never enough time in the world to um, achieve perhaps the destination but you break that down into little tasks a little join a little process and slowly but surely you've actually created a whole a whole system that you can work with you know and in terms of first commissions patrick like where what was who was the first person that approached you with a job? Okay. So during this time, I made the very interesting choice of not accepting any work. Mm-hmm. None. And Brave. It was brave. I had to systematically forget how to be a cabinet maker. I had to delete that part of my brain in order to... Well, I felt like I had to. In order to actually uh, wipe the slate to focus on the furniture. So... You can imagine, you need to live. So actually, after that six months, um, I applied to the local Carbotech shop and got a job at Carbotech, mm-hmm. which proved to be, to my absolute surprise, like there were two jobs that I was happy to do. If I'm not going to work in the trade, I'm either going to go to a timber mill and learn how to take the, the timber from a log to a board and understand that process, or I'm going to go to retail... Um, and enjoy the benefits of having low physical impact um, and, and time to just figure out my next move. And I worked at Carbotech for 18 months during this time where I wasn't taking on work. So it proved to be such a significant experience to my learning because I had all of the aptitude base of a cabinet maker, but then when you are inserted into the boutique woodworking world, it became my job to solve these complicated woodworking problems for my customers and my Mm -hmm. clients. And you pair that with um, machinery training, understanding um, different products and different elements, and it's like the whole woodworking world just opened up to me. And I'm sitting there at the computer and looking at these obscure products made by Lee that aren't stocked really, but they still exist. And I'm like, ooh, there's one of these up at the Brisbane store. I might buy it and have it, <laughs> have it sent down. And suddenly I, I had the ability to navigate what I was trying to achieve or what I was drawing on the paper. I had the means to figure out how can I achieve this joint or this profile. I'll go and look at the, all the router bits on the wall. And it's like I was right there. I was... I had the vision of what I was trying to create by being in the shop and working there. It's like I had the keys to the kingdom. It was just... Mm. uh, It really surprised me how beneficial that time was for me and not to mention that there's insane staff um, benefits. Mm. So... Oh, right. I, I spent... and a lot of money whilst I was working there in order to get all of the gear, got all of my festal gear, um, got all of the stuff that, you know, I believe that's just a requirement. You need, if you want to produce really high quality items, you need really high quality tools and it is cost prohibitive. It's a hard, it's something that you just have to pay for. Um, and there's kind of no two ways around that. You need to raise the money, you need to work and buy it one way or another. So being there and being able for that hurdle to be dropped was a fantastic 
uh, enabler to increasing the the means and having the time and supplementing my income and all the while before work after work on the weekends in the workshop figuring out what am I going to make how am I going to do this uh, where do I want to sit in the industry who's doing what is it service is it product yada 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 so that that two years of um I would say very close observation was extremely beneficial for me because when it came time to say, yes, I am going to accept work, I had such a clear understanding of the type of work I wanted to accept, why I was accepting it and how that's going to happen. Mm. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah, yeah. It seems very methodical. Like we've we've talked about it on the show so many times about when people are just breaking in. You know, don't give up the day job too soon. Or if you want to give up the day job, take on a job where it's the least amount of stress. And like you said, like if you had taken on a job in a timber mill, it probably would have given you a very different outcome. You would have been exhausted at the end of days. You wouldn't have had the <laughs> yeah. the tools. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a really smart way of thinking about things. It's fu- yeah, it, it, look, it's funny how things pan out, isn't it? It's mm. just... Um, I, When I was working as a cabinet maker, I did a lot of work on the side, a lot of um, commission-based work, and because of my creative aptitude and the skill set that I had at the time, um, you know, opportunities present themselves to do this job or do this feature wall or do this project, and I'm... A, a very optimistic person and that optimism um, was a detriment in that situation because like a lot of people who are navigating commission-based work for the first time want to produce the very best that they can but they will generally always undercharge or yeah. you know it, it lands you in hot water where you don't want to be criticized for the work that you're doing but if the budget isn't there you're just going to do the best you can do anyway so it wasn't by accident that the approach that I figured to move more so into product and away from service, um, it didn't happen by accident. It was drawn on my experience as a tradesman and um, doing that, those sort of commission-based projects. And I don't think any, any approach is necessarily better or worse. It's just uh, based on my... Uh, what I'm trying to achieve with the work and my small business uh, product is much more suited to what I'm doing at this point in time. So you seem to have created in only maybe three years or slightly less. When I look at your work, it's a fairly distinctive style. And Mm. so you went from taking on some random whatever you could get kind of jobs and then said, okay, I'll do products because it's suits my lifestyle better, whatever. And then you just come out with this style, which is not 100% unique, but bloody nice. Um, Thank and, you. And so how did that come about? Because you're taking yeah. essentially square stock and making it round, I think is what's happening, yep. and putting some tenons in there, all of which is hard. And then... Uh, and some joinery that I've been looking at wondering what the hell's going on. I'd like to know how things are staying put. Um, and so, yeah, so tell me about how, how you got to this point right. where you're making these crazy shapes. All right. So just to, just to clarify that timeline a little bit from doing the work, uh, doing the, the commission style work on the side after my time as a cabinet maker, there was a big hiatus in there. There was about that, two-year hiatus, two-and-a-half-year, where there was no work done for anybody. So that, that's an important thing to, to note because there's no intellectual um, competition or no me having to service someone else's wishes. It was like, we're going to burn this house down and just see what, see what can grow. What, what is it that I want to do? What am I interested in? And what are the drivers behind the work that I want to create? So... I love uh, tactile furniture, so everything is going to be round or round in some uh, in some way. And during my time as a cabinet maker, I, I started designing this table that had a, a three-legged table 
intersected in the middle, this sort of sculptural thing. And I made the first one as a, as a cabinet maker with a biscuit machine and it was very ordinary. The whole thing fell apart. Um, <laughs> but when I came down to Tassie, I had the, the uh, workshop here. I was able to resolve that design and I started building these tables. At, at the time, I thought that these tables were going to be the product. This is going <laughs> to go bananas. Like, this is it. This is, the, this is the rocket ship, you know. And ironically, there were some very redeeming elements about the table, but, 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 but. A three-legged table with splayed legs means six, has to be six or three, which is a big table for a circular table or... Mm-hmm ridiculous for three chairs that's another thing in australia houses are no longer built to accommodate a circular table they were after the post-war uh you know you'd have your your breakfast nook or whatever but they were never six seat tables they were not opulent that people who do have homes who are going to accommodate a circular table most likely are romantic type people who have an existing table that there's nothing wrong with. Yeah. So why would they buy a brand <laughs> new designer table? It's like I hadn't even conceived that there were these other factors that could impact the design. Is that something that you worked out by yourself or is it something that... Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> it is. It is. And I was like, why aren't these why tables? Why is it selling? Like, it's a good, it's a good looking table. Like, what's, what have I done wrong? And I've done nothing wrong except... That's that classic question that a marketing agent will tell you, who is your customer? And you go, oh, yeah. oh yeah, my customer would buy it, but they've already got one. <laughs> so... Go, go figure. It, it sort of smacked me in the head because... Um, I was working on this table to answer your question very succinctly. I knew that this developmental phase could only exist for so long. I had to... um, You you can't keep hemorrhaging money into research and development. At some point, you have to get out there and start making work, otherwise it's never going to happen. So I applied um, for an exhibition, to have a solo exhibition, um, given that... This is going to be my. This is going to be the big bang moment, you know. Like I'm, I want to um, present myself, market ready, available to take orders with a with a collection of pieces. And I applied for the space. I had about six. Uh, I had about sixteen months from the application when the when I was approved. I had about fourteen months from go to woe. Like you've been approved for the space. In, in 14 months... Oh, there goes a the clamp. Um, in 14 months, you're having an exhibition. And it was a very ambitious project because the exhibition, it was the biggest gallery in Hobart. It's about 500 square metres. It's a significant space, very hard to fill out. And I just thought, I'm going to go for it and I'm going to ha- make a great exhibition. So that then put the line in the sand that said... By this point, I will have a body of work resolved. Oh, sorry, just to interrupt you there, Patrick. So when you're saying you're applying for an exhibition, not to have a piece in an exhibition, you are the exhibition. I am the exhibition. (laughs) Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, booked the space, solo exhibition, and it was crazy. And I don't think I realised how crazy it was at the time, and that's that's ignorance is bliss, right, thinking, (laughs) oh, well... Who's this guy? He's booked out the long galleries. This is like the biggest gallery in the state. Like, are you nuts? And lo and behold, they, they approved me for it. So I thought, this, this is going to happen. So all the while, I'm working at Carbotech. I started doing these tables. Wasn't, didn't quite figure out yet why they weren't selling or, or why there wasn't enough interest around them. But it was like, what's the breadcrumb step here? So it was... The tables were heavy. They were too cumbersome to move around by myself. Didn't like that. What can I do? I have to scale the work down, scale it down a bit. What's going to happen next? And I made a, a bench seat, uh, sort of similar geometry, just to as a prototype spec piece on scaling the work down. And instantly there was some satisfaction there for me. Um, 
in being able to pick the thing up and walk it around. And I thought, I think that there's actually, there's some promise here in scaling the work down from dining tables. I think as an emerging or an aspiring uh, woodworker, you can straight away go to something like a dining table where you go, yep, there, there is a considered demand for dining tables. If, if you can be flexible, they're well paid. Like, this could be a great, a great way to actually start making this viable. But when you're working by yourself, risk of injury increases, risk of damage increases, you've got transport, all of these other factors. And I thought, if I can actually scale the work down, it's going to help me navigate getting the work to clients who aren't in Tasmania, yep. which is another big factor. And the splayed leg on the bench just read way too heavy and I thought, I need to make this simple for myself. So let's, let's get rid of the splayed leg and move to a perpendicular leg. So what's a perpendicular leg bench going to look like? It can't be too simple. And all the while... I'm sitting at Carbotech investigating. I mean, I'm on, I'm on the computer and, like, it's retail, so you're going to have a, quiet, a lot of quiet afternoons. I'm investigating who's doing what, how much is stuff costing, um, you know, who, which businesses are performing well in the country, what are they doing right? Um, and I thought there's not much furniture that you can make as a maker that a manufacturer cannot do better. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's a pretty hard thing to digest. So if there's few things that I can't do, or there's, if there's not much that I can do that a manufacturer can't do better, what can I do that's going to be too inconvenient for a manufacturer? <laughs> yep. yep. And I was thinking about that and just ruminating on this Carbotech sitting down the desk. I've had about 75 coffees and drawing furiously like a maniac. And I thought, no, yeah, I need to put more work into the simple form. And that work needs to be evident. So people who know nothing about woodwork or nothing about furniture need to be able to look at this piece. And even if they're completely ignorant, go, shit, there's a lot of work in that. Mm. Just stru structurally can... to understand how a piece goes together. Yeah. 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 Tangibly. If they can look at it and there's evidence that there's, you know, I'm the biggest fan of dominoes. Like I use dominoes all the time. But if every join in this chair is done by a domino, what evidence is there to how these two pieces are connected? So I thought if where every leg and rail meets, there's a housed tenon mm. and then it's, cut and then it's rounded, you actually get the, well, the, the result of that is when you're viewing the piece from the other side, you're looking at end grain that disappears into side grain yeah. and once it's oiled, you get this magical contrasting timber and people look at it and they go, fuck, there's a lot of work in that. So mm. this sort of intense investigation into this specific join, which is taking a leg and a rail, which is a fairly basic um, staple for any piece of furniture, if I can do that, then it can be repeated. If it's repeated, you've got cohesion, and that helps with the perceived value of the product, which helps you get the sale across the line with the customer. Yep. Because it's not like, oh, that's crazy expensive. It's just it really helps to put the work into a different league where it's incomparable to a mass-produced piece. Even for someone who's completely ignorant, they can yeah. understand that if you were to put a bench from Harvey Norman and one of my benches next to each other, someone who knows nothing about it would say there's a lot more work in, in mind than there is in that. And you see the price tag and you say, okay, that's why. And presumably as well, as you are doing that same join over and over again, you are getting better and better and more efficient. Mm. So that time is reducing exactly. as well. So it's going from exactly. looking like a hard job to not actually being a hard job. Correct. And that became a bit of a staple to my, one, well, one of my key ethics or the key, key morals is I want to make 
the most difficult looking piece of furniture as easy as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's so fundamental to being able to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And as much as, um, you know, there can be commentary about repetition is, is boring or it's not so exciting, the reality of being a maker and the reality of doing this is that there is repetition and that there are weeks where it's tough and you've just got to be, you know, you've got a whole bunch of sanding to do and you've got two weeks of sanding. Like, that is just what comes with the territory. It's not... It's easy to romanticise... I'd love to be a full-time woodworker, but there are, there's a lot of it that's quite tough. And mm. I look back on my time as being a tradesman and I'm very grateful because that's how I learnt to work. Like, I, I learnt to be able to go and punch 50 hours out in the workshop and do it again the next week and again the next week and again the next week. And the more you do that, the more it becomes normal. And suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, there's... There's an avenue here, and I think I can successfully navigate that. Um, I hope that's answered your question. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting as well to switch away from dining tables, like when you're looking at filling an exhibition space by switching to things like benches and chairs, you're automatically cutting your material cost hugely as well, like the volume of work that you can produce. But then further down the line, you're looking at it and going, right, if I strip out material costs and I'm doing something like a Danish cord weave, yeah, it takes a long time, but you're actually getting paid for your labor as opposed to just buying a material and that money is passing through your business instead it's ending up in your pocket. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the, the scale of the work, it's something that really fascinates me. Something like a bench is so adaptable. People buy them, they put them at the foot of their bed, they put them in the hallway under an artwork, they put it in a window. Some people buy them without even knowing where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. In terms of a, a product that has the ability to captivate a buyer, it's a great product to do that because yeah. you're not going to get this anxiety or the client doesn't have this anxiety like, oh, I really love that, but where would I put it? Yeah, where will it fit? That's where what I was just going to say. Like, that is, it's the perfect piece for somebody as for somebody to make an impulse buy and to say, oh, I want that, I love it, I'm just going to buy it right now. Mm-hmm. And, and then they'll figure the rest out when they get home. No one ever does that with a dining table. Correct. Never going to happen with a dining table. It's like we're doing this once in our lifetime and mm-hmm. it's going to see us out. Um, so I think that if you are going to go down product route, there's a great level of scrutiny that can happen and that you can use to really help navigate those, uh, the difference between different products or what you're trying to achieve. And certainly by me creating this framework of um, geometry and motifs that are repeated through the work, it allows me to build this cohesion between the products and based on the work and the approach and the way clients perceive the work, they want to collect other pieces. So if a client Mm. buys a bench and then they get a new kitchen, they're like, ooh, I think we might get some stools to match the bench that's in the hall. Mm, Yeah. And then, you know, there's this kind of slingshot effect and um, it's been... been, um, really humbling to see how well the work has been received by, uh, by the clientele. And for my workflow, keeping a bit of regularity to the process is it really helps me to navigate building different pieces simultaneously. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, once you set up, you can start running through the motions and that all helps when you're trying to do it. Everything with by your own two hands and you know, at the moment I'm in the co-op, but I'm not going to be here forever. So I need to be constantly thinking about how viable is this? How am I going to afford that commercial rental? Um, what's the next step? So I think about all that stuff too. You know. Yeah, you've obviously you've you've hustled pretty hard, eh? Like you've done a lot of different exhibitions and and around the country. You've done in Victoria, right? You've done Ballarat and yeah. Melbourne. Yeah, we've, we've, we've We've been have been around a bit the last year, and it's interesting as um, the the industry, from my perception, is broken up into different facets, and 
Um, exhibitions are a, are a fantastic way of navigating that because you can put a piece in an exhibition and you can see what the crowd is, you can talk to people and see how, oh, is what I'm doing or what I'm really interested, is it received really well here? Or it's not received well at all. Okay, this is not my crowd. These are not my people. Mm-hmm. Are all the judges... Do the judges make stuff or are they all industrial designers? <laughs> like, what's their background? And I think um, it's that if we can understand the industry that better, you can find your place in it better. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the exhibitions are a great way of being able to, uh, you know, A, show what you're doing and build your own audience and meet your peers, which is very important as well because it's great to see uh, who else is coming up through the ranks and what their uh, intentions are or what's their story because everyone's got something else to offer, you know. It's very diverse uh, and exciting time, I think, in Australian furniture making. And then talk us, talk us through Clarence and the piece that you, uh, you won that award with. The chair. The chair. How good. Yeah, so, congratulations. Oh, thanks so much, guys. It was... Um, I was absolutely stoked. The the chair... I suppose the foundations of the, the joinery, the work that had been successful on the bench, um, when I get onto something or when I perceive something is good, I want to build on that. I want to examine all of the good parts of that and then test it and, and reformulate that. So... The Danish cord weaving solved a big problem for me prior to my big first exhibition. It's like it cracked open the whole work. Um, Offsetting the textile and the timber really helped the pieces to resolve and it happened quite quickly. Um, It took me by surprise, so if, if people are thinking about exploring textiles, do it. Explore your materials because... I had no idea that the textile would inform so much of my future work. And as soon as I realised that it worked, I start thinking like, oh, I'm going to do an armchair. I'm, I'm building up to this. I've, by that point, I'd made a dozen benches and had done stools and exploring a geometry. How can I do this? Um, so you're kind of building up in this timeline to the chair. And when the chair came about, I thought, what a great opportunity to have a big statement chair. So more exposed joins, but in the chair, uh, you've got the exposed uh, through tenons on the one rail in different angles, which yeah. was something that I hadn't done before. There's a, comp- there's a compound rail uh, down the bottom, which I hadn't addressed before. So those two elements sort of challenged uh, the other joinery. So I had to resolve those. And then um, the weaving itself was more complicated because the frame um, on the chair has the exposed timber rail at the front. So traditionally with Danish cord weaving, all four sides are exposed so you can get under and you can do all of that. Um, What I found through the stools is that if I cut a curved rebate, I can actually plunge the cord through the through that and keep timber on on two sides, mm. um, which is kind of reinventing. Well, well, perhaps exploring a new um, a new element to a traditional technique, rather, um, and that then informed the chair. So the chair became this enormous maximalist big statement piece. And initially, the first prototype I built, you know, the rear legs sat on the outside of the front two legs. Right. Which is mm. kind of against the rules of chair making, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I thought, why not? Let, let's have a crack. And what it meant is that in the middle, I had to create these curved sort of knuckle joints. And from some angles, it looked so good. And then other angles, it just looked a bit something's not quite right here, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, perhaps that rule exists for a reason that, you know, the (laughs) rear legs should sit within. Um, And the chair was received well. Some of the clients that purchased my previous work, they all want to know, like, what else do you do? And I've just released released an armchair and, like, great, I'd love to have a look at it. And a handful of clients started ordering armchairs and... 
can you make a footstool for it? Yes, I can. <laughs> let's let's have let let let's have a look. And it's like perhaps the appropriate analogy is that uh, what's what's the fairy tale where there's the trail of breadcrumbs through the forest or whatever? It's, yeah, it's like I've kind of been following my nose. I set all of these rules and the more that I've leaned into the decisions that have allowed me to develop the work, the more the clients respond to that and they like that I don't do too many open commissions, you know. It's like mm. this is what I offer. These, these are the materials. There's not too much choice. and Which is genius. Uh, too much choice is terrible for, for a lot of clients. Yep. Like mm. so many people can't choose. Give them three choices and that's enough. Um, it's yeah. something we've talked about before. And uh, seeing as I've got the mic and we're getting, coming to the end of the, this little conversation, I, I just wanted to point out that your chair, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, that is so different. Um, I'm not sure what to make of it, but it's an interesting shape and I search for some extra angles of it and I was okay this is great and now after going through your your other work and then coming back and looking at the chair it's like an, a perfect amalgam of what you've created and pushing the boundaries forward and I could see that chair along with something else that you've created just being such a perfect um, uh, combination together in the same room and so, like, hats off to you for for doing what you've done, and your your design styling is um, really inspiring. Along with your story, I think it's going to give me Thanks some so much, food guys. for thought. Thank you. I, I'm I'm really humbled by it. I mean, it's I, I had uh, I suppose it's a, it's a privilege to be selective with the work that you take on. It, you can you can create that situation, and you know you guys all run small businesses. You get it. There's um, there's a point, and I was rapidly approaching that point prior to the Clarence, where you're questioning. There's always that voice that creeps in, and how much of this is crazy? Am I am I nuts? You know, I've been saying no to work for a long time. No, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. And with my background as a cabinet maker. Like, I could build an incredibly strong business with the architects and the design world doing amazing work. And at what point is this um, hard line that I've decided to walk, at what point is that just nuts if it's not returning? Because it take, you don't start out with a reputation. You have to kind of define that. You have to try and create that. And that's what I've been doing. And... The exhibitions help to expose that to the expose your practice to the world, and you have to try and um, communicate that somehow. I'm not too savvy with social media, but I, I go for quality over quantity. But my point is, is that the Clarence came through, and the validation of that prize was so significant to me because I realised that this hard line that I've been walking, like people are actually responding to it. Like, I'm not entirely nuts. Um, and there's a, there's a bit of a strength to that. Um, if you can consider these pieces not as one-offs, you know, because anyone can order them. Um, and that has really helped me to walk that, that, that delicate balance. And off the back of the Clarence, a handful of clients have reached out if I'd do some, some commissions for them. And I'm doing a couple of custom pieces at the minute, which is the first time that I've actually taken on work outside of my own agenda. But interestingly, the clients have given me complete autonomy over the projects. Wow. No worries. And, you know, and I'm trying to define the parameters. Okay, what are the actual... Let, let's just create a bit of a world here, but material um, at your discretion... What's the budget? No budget. You know, like these are dream, dream commissions that have come out of thin air because they're responding to what's happened through the, through the prize and that it's like they want a piece of my IP. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's the most 
humbling thing to to happen. And once upon a time, me as a smelly apprentice screwing boxes together in a factory was just dreaming of these jobs. Like, how, mm. how could this even... How can we find these magic clients, you know? But, um, yeah, I... I'm very humbled and, and very happy to be to be doing it and, um, you know, woodwork's a great thing to do. I, I, we're, getting le- we're having less and less trees these days, so uh, we, we've got to enjoy it while we can, can't we? Mm. Yeah. All right, we're, we're, we're actually going to have to call it there. I can't believe I'm, I'm having yeah. to, to put a limit on this, but we are up to time. Um, I feel like no this worries. conversation could literally go on for the next two or three hours. Um, I know. I yeah. feel like we should go on a camping trip together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I can actually, so I can actually learn about you guys, not the other way around. Yeah, but thanks again, Patrick. Such a, such a great story to hear it, in, and in particularly in such, in, in such detail. Um, hopefully the, the people listening to this have got a lot of value out of this episode because it's, mm. you know, often particularly when we ask people about their stories, we sometimes get very succinct versions and you think maybe we've missed out. And sometimes we get just very sort of, you know, I decided to do woodworking and I did woodworking and that, that's the story. So hearing exactly how, you know, all those steps that you went through, very, very interesting. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I hope, um, I hope it's been all right and I haven't talked too much. I can see we're a bit over time, so. That's perfect. <laughs> That's what we want. Uh, That's what we yeah, want. No worries. All right. So all the best. Um, if uh, if anyone wants to check out Patrick's work on Instagram, Studio Adini would be the place to do it. That beautiful workbench is up there if you want to have a look. And then obviously um, the Windsor chair is there as well. So you can get some context. Thanks again for coming on the show, uh, Patrick. All the best. And we will talk to you again soon. Brilliant. Take care, yeah. guys. Thanks very much again. Cheers, See you guys. later. Thanks, Patrick.